Good morning, everyone. This is our beginning to the Lord's Day. This is Module 5, Session 6, and we're doing Galatians and Ephesians today. So we're going to just dig into the Word for a bit here and enjoy some of the truths of Scripture. So let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on, on His day today. Our Father, this is the Lord's Day. This is the day where we set ourselves apart. We, we really desire, Lord, to um, come to you in a way that is undistracted, in a way that is focused exclusively on you. And that takes effort. It takes time. It takes work. Our minds and our lives are so filled with many, many other things that we need to gather together and we need to minimize our distractions and we need to come together beginning to focus our minds, Lord, away from the things of this world and onto the things of heaven. And so I pray, Lord, that today would be a day that that helps us toward that end and that we would um, see the glories of the gospel in Galatians and Ephesians this day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to do, like I said, Module 5, Session 6, and um, we're trying to squeeze in Galatians and Ephesians. I make no promises. We'll see what happens. Um, I mean, we're just doing this till Christ returns anyway, so. But we do want to get through Module 5 eventually. So, Galatians. little introductory material. Book of Galatians. Uh, Apostle Paul is the author of both Galatians and Ephesians. Take care of that up front. Uh, Galatians is one of uh, his earlier books, probably about 50 to 56 B.C. Um, it may actually be, or B.C., uh, A.D., that's only 120 years off. Um, it may actually be earlier. Uh, the timing of the book of Galatians is actually an interpretive issue, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. The Galatian churches, there was not a city of Galatia, it was not one church. The Galatian churches are groups of churches, and that's important to understand. It is the churches in Pisidian Antioch, churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and you would read uh, Acts 13 and 14 and Acts 16 to see those churches. So think of uh, the book of Galatians might be, uh, we might put it this way, if a letter was being written by the Apostle Paul to our church, it would be to the churches of Kern County. It would be kind of like that. But also keep in mind that these individual churches were very, very tied to apostolic authority. So, you know, there might be a church uh, a mile away from us. Well, there's a church 100 feet away from us. We have nothing to do with them. That we have no authority over them. We don't have a single authority structure. But these churches, the reason we can say the Church of Galatia is because they may have been meeting in different places, but they all considered themselves under apostolic authority and they all ultimately uh, submitted to the apostles. And so that, that was a wonderful time um, to be able to go to a church in a city and any of the gatherings all believe the same thing. Wouldn't that have been phenomenal? And that's not the case now, of course. So you have the Galatian churches in Pisidian Antioch. The reason we have to say Pisidian Antioch is there's another city. Syrian Antioch, that's the city that Paul was sent from. Pisidian Antioch is a different city. We have in here the Galatian controversy, and that's a big part of, of this book. Here it is. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's pretty serious stuff to say that if somebody preaches a different gospel, they ought to be cursed by God. They ought to be uh, shown to be unsaved. So that's what Galatians is about. And Galatians is, it's not the book to go to when you're feeling down and you need some warm fuzzies from the Lord. That's probably not the best place to start. And I'm not saying you go the scripture that way. But Galatians is unique among all of Paul's letters in that he doesn't give any warmth, any commendation, any, any greetings of, of, hello, it's so wonderful to, to speak to you. And, and he doesn't give any thankfulness. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so thankful for you like he does all the other churches. He just says, hi, I'm astonished at what you're doing. 
Very, very serious stuff. Book of Galatians should be referenced or preached in every church every once in a while to remind us to stay on the gospel. So, there's some introductory things. What are the historical themes? Historical and theological themes. And we're going to return to these because there's actually one passage in Galatians that touches on every single major theme. And we'll come back to that. It's just very interesting. You have circumcision versus uncircumcision. Uh, We would say Jew versus Gentile. What does it take to be a Christian? One of the main issues in the Galatian controversy was those that were saying that to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. And we call those Judaizers. I'll talk about those in a moment in detail. You have the theme of the gospel. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the gospel is forefront. Uh, The book of Galatians is actually a wonderful uh, place to share the gospel from because you have illustrations, you have explanations of the gospel. You have the theme of the cross and of being crucified with Christ. Of course, when the gospel is forefront, then the cross of Christ is going to be forefront. You have the law and faith. 31 times the law is spoken of. Faith is spoken of 26 times. And they're, they're put in juxtaposition to one another. That you are not saved by works of the law. You are saved by faith. 26 times. You have the flesh that you're, we, we don't walk, Galatians 5, don't walk by the flesh, but walk by whom? By the Spirit. And that's the difference. How do you know you're saved? You're walking by the Spirit. You're not walking in the flesh. And, and Paul's whole point is, and he says this uh, in Galatians, is your salvation was begun by the Spirit of God. Why would you say that you're now continuing it by works of the flesh, by doing good things and by continuing to obey the law? Why would you say that? You have the themes of justification and righteousness. Some of the greatest verses on justification and righteousness in all of the New Testament. And of course, grace. Why would grace be a big emphasis? Because the Judaizers were saying that you're saved by doing good works of the law. Then you come to grace. That there's a a step progression. They were legalists. If you want to understand legalism, Galatians is where you go. And as long as we're on legalism... I'm going, to, I'm going to take a liberty for a moment. Um, I think legalism is in the top ten most misunderstood ideas in Christendom. When a shepherd says to a man, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Stop being a jerk and start being a nicer guy because the Bible says husbands love your, love your wives as Christ loves the church. A non-believer says, Well, that's just legalism. A believer says, yes, sir, I want to obey my Lord. Do you see the difference? Legalism is not obedience um, to to the law of Christ because you're a Christian. Legalism is obedience to the law of Christ to become a Christian. There's a big difference. And so... Calling people to obedience, calling people to sanctification, calling people to to obeying the word of God, that is not legalism. That is being a Christian. And you really can't make a case at all that um, just calling uh, believers to obedience is legalism. That is the cry of the unbeliever who says, I don't want to be accountable to God. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do what the Word of God says. Uh, and they cry legalism. And it's, it's kind of like that old illustration. If you're, if you're ever arm wrestling someone and you're losing, if you just make your wrist go limp, you can kind of sit there forever. And that's what they do because they can't win that argument intellectually or biblically. There's no way to win that argument. So we want to be very clear that when Galatians pushes back very, very hard against legalism, it is not pushing back against obedience. And in fact, Galatians 6 is basically all about obeying the Lord because you're in Christ, not in order to be in Christ. So I wanted to just make that very clear. Uh, It's not okay to call obedience to the Lord legalism. That is not accurate. Then you have the theme of the Judaizers and their attacks against Paul. What do uh, heretics do? 
when they can't answer an argument uh, biblically, they point fingers. And this is what all unbelievers do, basically, don't they? Uh, that when they can't, when they can't attack an idea, they attack the person who's giving the idea. And we see this in our world all the time, right? You read the news and you see that that even political liberals they can't. They can't argue anything intellectually because everything they believe makes no sense. And so they have to point fingers and they have to blame and and that sort of thing. So the Judaizers went after Paul because they couldn't back up what they were saying with any revelation. They said he wasn't an original apostle. That he was, uh, he was that extra guy who came along later after, after uh, persecuting the church. And they were, they were right about that. Um, the worst criticism usually has a grain of truth to it, right? So they were right about that. But, but what did Paul say about himself? He said, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm like a miscarried child. I'm that sort of apostle. That, that's, that's how he characterized himself. He said, I'm, I'm the lowest of the low. He called himself the chief of all the sinners. So you couldn't out self-deprecate Paul. You, you saying to him, you aren't an original apostle, he would say, I know. That's like a, a, a wife telling a godly husband, you are such a sinner. And he ought to go, I know. That's, isn't it awful and I need to repent? So that wasn't an insult to Paul. They also said that Paul's gospel was not the complete gospel. Okay, now them's fighting words. Because... Paul received the gospel not just from special revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, although he did. He was very unique in that. But he took the gospel from the Old Testament. When he preached the Bible, he was preaching the Old Testament. And he's the one who would say that you would see Christ in the Old Testament. And he, he uh, said, we preach Christ in him crucified. And that's not just from special revelation. That is from his understanding of Isaiah 53 and, and the repentance needed uh, by Israel from Zechariah 12. He was an Old Testament master. There's a reason for that. And so Paul's gospel not being the complete gospel was ludicrous. And then he said that they, he was accused of of the gospel leading to loose living. That's what legalists tell us. Well, if you say you're free in Christ, that means you're free to disobey all you want. What does he say in Romans 6? Are we, are we going to just keep sinning all we want? He said, may it never be. So you here at Grace Bible Church, you've heard this enough that I think this is, this is normal information to you, but just to be very clear, the true gospel is the regeneration of the heart the filling of the Holy Spirit, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is the subsequent obedience to the Word of God day by day by day. There isn't a single true believer that says, my obedience to Christ is a legalistic burden. No true believer says that. Why? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commands. It's instinctive to us, right? We want to obey. That's what you ought to tell your children when they're little. It's a simple two-step question. Do you love mommy and daddy? Yes. Then obey. I don't want to obey. Then you don't love mommy and daddy. Do you see how that logic goes? It's very simple for us. We understand that. To say, on the other hand, well, if you don't put these rules and restrictions on people, then they're just going to live however they want. They're going to do whatever they want. I have never known, not that my experience is theologically accurate, but I have never known a true believer in Christ who truly desires to live however he wants. I don't think that person exists. We instinctively want to obey. And so they would say, you've got to put these restrictions on people. You've got to have them be circumcised as men. You've got to have them under the law because otherwise they're just going to go crazy. But that's not true. What actually happens, and he fights this in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That fights against that. So, they were attacking him. Now, who were these opponents? Who were these Judaizers? Let's talk about them. They were Judaizers, and the Judaizer basically said that you were required to live like a Jew in order to be saved. That that was a requirement. In chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is confronted by Paul. 
Galatians 2, 11 through 14, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Okay, stop right there. So what was Peter doing? Peter, remember, the one who received the vision from God in the book of Acts, that all foods are clean now? And he's eating with Gentiles. He's, he's like, pass the bacon. You know, he's whatever they want. <laughs> but when they came, when the Jews came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I I did have a small boy ask me once about Galatians uh, 2.12, about the circumcision party, and he thought it was a party where little boys are being circumcised. And I said, no, that's not what it is. So just to be clear, that's not what the circumcision party is. The circumcision party are all those that say you must be you you must obey the law. You must go back to the Old Testament in order to be saved. I love it when little boys read the read the read the Bible. They they're like I, I don't know what this means. So what is Paul telling Peter? And he confronts him publicly. He says, Peter, by your actions, you're communicating to the Gentile believers that now they need to live like Jews. Because Peter, all of a sudden, was only eating the kosher food of the Jews. And he was trying to please them. But for Paul, it was a bigger issue. Telling the Gentiles that God does not accept you as a Gentile. What is, arguably, the entire book of Acts about? You remember who Acts is originally written to? It's originally written to a man named Theophilus, a Gentile, who basically asked the question, Can I, as a Gentile, be saved? And so, Paul tells Peter that's not okay. Now, Peter, to be very, very clear, was not a Judaizer. He was not a Judaizer. Judaizers, uh, in, in most or all cases, were not believers. But his actions played into the hands of Judaizers, being circumcised, keeping laws, including food laws, and, and so forth. The point is, is that any sort of work that leads to salvation perverts the gospel. Truth is actually that faith plus nothing is the gospel. There's not faith plus anything. Faith is sufficient. And it has to be. There can't be a single work. You, you notice that we, we don't even do an altar call. And I get that question about once a year from newer members. How come you don't do an altar call? Because I never want to convince somebody that because they got up from their seat and walked forward and knelt down and prayed the prayer that they're saved. Um, a trivia question. How many examples of the sinner's prayer are there in the Bible? Zero. There are none. I love that everybody raised your hands with a big zero. Uh, nobody went, eight. Oh, wait, no, that's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we don't ever want to give people that impression. Now, we want people to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel, and we have, we have a, 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 usually a married couple or two that are off to the side ready to speak to somebody. But never do we want to say, by going over to the exit sign to my left or to my right, um, you are getting saved. We never want to give that impression. We don't even want to give the impression that by being baptized you'll be saved. That's why we interview every baptism candidate to make sure they understand this is a symbol of something that has already occurred. There's nothing magical about it. This is why three or four times a year we make sure at the Lord's table to say there's nothing magical or spiritually life-changing about receiving the Lord's table. It will not save you. It's a symbol of something that's already happened. So what is the, what is the key to this issue the key is Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul says, and you probably have this memorized, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, what's the next phrase? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, you, you, if you've been at Grace for a long time, you might think, well, this isn't really a big issue. You go to so many churches, even in our nation, legalism is still rampant. And it's still a problem. Um, you go to a church that says you can't be saved if you, don't, if you read any other version other than the King James Version. Um, that you, you have to be baptized in our church. Well, 
I just moved here because my job transferred me. I've been baptized. Now, no, you got to be baptized in our church. You run from that. So legalism is, and, and we're comfortable with legalism, right? We're comfortable with rules. We're comfortable saying that you're going to hell if you watch anything besides PG uh, or, or lower in movies. We, we have a comfort zone around legalism instead of doing what is pleasing to the Lord and doing uh, that which is walking in the Spirit, that which promotes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it's, it's hard for us sometimes. We want to make rules because we're comfortable in that realm, aren't we? But we don't make rules except what the Bible says. And, and that's very clear. There's no, there's no lack of clarity there. So those are Paul's opponents. What was the purpose of the book? It's a big one. I'll repeat it several times. Purpose of the book, Paul declared and defended the gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone and defined the implications of the gospel for the Galatian believers. Paul declared and defended the gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone and defined the implications of the gospel for the Galatian believers. And I've given you the literary structure here. You can kind of see what the major theme is. Justification by faith is defended, chapters 1 and 2. Justification by faith is explained, chapters 3 and 4. And justification by faith is applied, chapters 5 and 6. So, what is he doing? And by the way, Galatians is a, is a great example to me as a preacher. There's a school of thought in preaching that says you need to be warm, fuzzy, and positive all the time. And I understand that. Nobody wants to come to church and, and hear, we're on part 39 of Everything I Hate series. Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. <clears throat> um, today, we're railing against the latest Christian heretic. And at times, that's necessary. That's called polemical preaching, argumentative preaching. And that is necessary. Paul tells me in Galatians that sometimes it's necessary and sometimes you have to do it. And when you do it, you do it hard. You don't pull punches. Um, you, you can't. He didn't pull any punches. And remember, these are churches he planted. He knew these people. He loved them. He had a relationship with them. He cherished them. You know what he told them in Galatians? He, he complimented them. He said, apparently, when he came to the region of Galatia, one of the reasons he's, he stopped was that some horrible disease he was dealing with stopped him in his tracks. And he said, you treated me like I was in an angel of God. You took me in. You cared for me. And all of a sudden, well, you're not an original apostle. Your gospel isn't the complete gospel. Your gospel leads to loose living. And he says to the Galatians, what happened? What did I do? I have not changed. The same gospel I preached to you that led you to faith in Christ originally is the same gospel I preach today. So, he comes back at them and he pulls no punches. I am astonished. And for him, this is an eternal issue. Because if you start straying slightly from the gospel, you begin to give more and more evidence that you were never saved to begin with. It's very, very clear, and Paul is, is, pulls no punches on that. Now, there are some interpretive issues. The first one is probably not of great interest to you, but it's important enough for us to mention. That is, the recipients and the date... The major issue is, did it go to the northern Galatians later or did it go to the southern Galatians earlier? Northern Galatians around AD 56 or the southern Galatians in 50 to 56? Um, Why is this important? This is important because of how it intersects with the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Because if if we're going to the northern Galatians in A.D. 56, then the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 that had to do with this exact issue is something separate than what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians. But by having an earlier time frame with the southern Galatians, that allows for the possibility that the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 is exactly the same as the meeting described in Galatians 2 in which Paul confronted Peter. And so uh, I personally like the earlier view because it makes more continuity, makes more sense. The Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So it makes much more continuity uh, sense for us to see the Acts 15 meeting and the Galatians 2 meeting as the same time. That is not a salvation issue. We'll find out in heaven. But for me, it makes a little bit more sense. At that meeting, the apostles met and they came to some conclusions that Gentiles are not to be required to obey the law of Moses. This is not part of the gospel. And so they reaffirmed that the new covenant did not include the law of Moses. They also said that the Gentile believers, though, should be asked to be sensitive to the particularly delicate issues to the Jewish Christians. That to, to not flaunt the fact that they've never been under the law. Because think about this. Let, let's say that you are... Let's say that you are 60 years old and you've grown up in a Jewish household and your, your parents are Jewish, your grandparents are Jewish, your, grand, your great-grandparents are still alive and these traditions have been, have been pounded into you. You've kept Passover, you've heard the Torah read over and over again and this means something to you. It, it's important to you. And you come to faith in Christ. You've been used to keeping Passover. You've been used to keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You've been used to making vows at the temple. You've been used to offering certain prayers. You've been used to um, being very, very enamored by the law. You know Psalm 119. The law of the Lord is good. And you know these things. And so you come to faith in Christ. And it's genuine, real faith. Do you think that the Jews who came to faith in Christ suddenly quit keeping Sabbath? Suddenly quit uh, keeping Passover? Suddenly quit doing these things? Of course not. There was a a couple of generations of overlap. And and it was was a difficult time for them. So the Acts 15, the Galatians 2 council, Gentile believers were told, you do not have to be a Jew to be saved. However, be sensitive to the Jews who are saved. And understand that they're in a transition time. And that this is a a delicate issue for them. There's a ton of similarities between Acts 15 and Galatians 2. One of the other reasons we would consider those as one event. So we're not going to be super dogmatic about it. But I think there's the most continuity there. Acts 15, Galatians 2 at the same time. So that's why that is an issue about uh, the dating and the recipients. Here's another issue, interpretive issue. What does Galatians 4 or 5 say about the future of Israel? This is gigantic because Galatians 4 or 5 is one of the major verses that covenant theologians um, say, tells us that we, the church, are kind of the new Israel. And so Galatians 4 or 5 says that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what are the two issues? Well, one possibility is that this is irrelevant to Israel since all men were born under the law. And that's what the covenant theologian would say. Everybody's been born under the law, so we, we receive adoption as sons, so this doesn't really have to do with Israel. This is just all the people of God. Can you think of anybody who is saved, who was not born under the law, who is Jewish? Abraham. He wasn't born under the law. Isaac wasn't born under the law. Jacob wasn't born under the law. There wasn't the law. It didn't exist yet. So you can't say that it's irrelevant to Israel. Romans 1 is very clear. Some are born under the law and non-Jews are born under a different system. The system of conscience. Conscience is what tells you as a Gentile that God exists and that you have a problem. You are born believing that murder is wrong. You were born with that conscience. You didn't believe murder is wrong because you read that in the Ten Commandments. So, one option is that it's irrelevant to Israel since all men were born under the law. That can't be. The other option is that it shows that Jesus came to redeem a remnant of Israel as a nation. He came to redeem those who were under the law. Romans 9, verse 6 makes it very clear that not all of Israel are Israel. What does that mean? You remember, we've said this a thousand times. The big circle, everybody born as a descendant of Abraham. The little circle, everybody born as a descendant of Abraham who has come to faith in Christ. That's Israel. That's the true Israel. Those born under the law, just like Jesus was born under the law. So, Galatians 4, 5 
quite the opposite of saying that the church is the new Israel or that we're all just inculcated together as one uh, generic people of God. Quite the opposite. It actually demonstrates that Christ came to redeem a remnant of Israel. And of course, we get to be grafted into that as well. And that's, that's a glorious thing. That does not mean that we are the same. It means that we are receiving all the same blessings. And then how about this one? This gives, this gives us some fits. Chapter 5, verse 4 speaks of those who have fallen from grace. If you go to a, a classic Southern Baptist church in Alabama... This, uh, this gets preached about 20 times a year. Don't be the one who's fallen from grace. Come forward and receive Christ again. And uh, just like you did last year and the year before. So what does this mean? Does it mean actual loss of salvation? Well, when you compare this with the preponderance of Scripture, it can't be that. Of course, Jesus said in John's Gospel that I will not lose one who's in my hand. And just to make sure we're clear, and the Father won't lose one who's in His hand. So you have this picture of us in Christ's hand and Christ in the Father's hand. And and, and unless you're stronger than God, you can't lose your salvation. Some say that it means falling from grace means losing their standing in grace because they fell into legalism. That they've lost their... Identity is those under grace, and yet they're still saved. Well, the problem is there's no biblical definition for what it means to lose your standing in grace. If you believe that you have done something to earn salvation, then there's no grace there. That's works. You you can't be part way. So we would fall on the side of really the only obvious choice that it means somebody who was never saved. Chapter 5 seems to be speaking back and forth to two different groups. Those who openly teach legalism and those brothers who are tempted to listen. So you have the unsaved and the the saved. Remember I told you, we we all struggle with this. We struggle with legalism because it's comfortable for us. It's comfortable to have rules. It's comfortable to, to have a set of rules that says this is what righteousness is. Instead of following conscience and the word of God and and what we uh, discern to be right. Some of the terminology and the descriptions used in Galatians 5 are actually very similar to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, I've preached this passage about four times at Grace because it's very, very important. But Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, in fact, we, we've got a moment. I'm going to read it. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. One of the most intensely misunderstood passages in the New Testament. says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So, who is that person of Galatians 5, fallen from grace? Who is the person of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, the one who has once been enlightened? Who are they? Well, they have to be unbelievers. And you say, especially from the Hebrews 6 passage, but that sounds really Christian. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. Five key phrases, none of which are ever applied to Christians anywhere else in the New Testament, ever. What is that person? That's the church attender. And the book of Hebrews is written particularly to to several groups, but but one group in particular, the Jews who said they're in Christ, but now they're, they're wavering and they're uncertain because persecution is making them have to make a choice. So, what has fallen from grace? It's not loss of salvation. It's not losing standing in grace. That makes no sense. It is somebody who was never saved. So, why would Paul use the phrase fallen from grace? You've heard me say this in church probably more than you want to hear again. This may be your last opportunity. You've heard the gospel over and over again. You've sat in church. You've gone to great churches. You've, you've listened to sermons. You've read your Bible. But if you're unregenerate, there is a time, according to Hebrews 10, when God says, enough. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So when Paul says they've fallen from grace, they've fallen from the opportunity 
to receive grace. They've fallen from um, having heard the gospel over and over and over again. What's our key passage? I went ahead and put it all up here, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Is it all up there? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm standing right in the way. I didn't realize that. I'll try to get shorter. I can't do that. I'll read it to you. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that the person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why is Galatians 2, 15-21 the key passage? To my knowledge, it's the only New Testament book that does this. Every major theme in the book is in that set of verses. Every major argument. Circumcision versus uncircumcision. I gave you this crazy little chart here. Um, You can see all of these here. Just get it online if you want. Circumcision versus uncircumcision. Or Gentile versus Jew. That's there. The gospel is there. The cross and crucify is there. The law and faith is there. Flesh is there. Justification and righteousness. Grace and the attacks on Paul. All the major themes are contained right there. And so, uh, uniquely enough, you might mark in your Bible, when you can't remember what Galatians about is about, read 2, 15 through 21 first. And it gives you a summary. All right. Well, we're going to transition over and do Ephesians. And Ephesians is an epic book. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it for this reason. The reason is when we get to module 7 which is in two modules away. Module 7 is our Bible study methods module. But the sample passage that we're going to do is Ephesians 4, 30 and 30, or 31 and 32. And we're going to do Ephesians in huge detail when we get there. And so we're just going to make this pretty quick today. Ephesians, again, the author is Paul. Most likely date, and this is significantly after Galatians, is AD 62. You have the church at Ephesus... Or potentially churches around Ephesus. I take the churches around Ephesus view. Um, the the original manuscripts of uh, Ephesians. One of the one of the interpretive issues is that the church at Ephesus isn't actually listed. Um, historically, that's what the apostles, or that's what the <clears throat> excuse me, the early church fathers all believed. This went to to the Ephesian church. So that's that's one hundred percent agreement there. But. It was originally almost, if I could put it this way, uh, it was like a fill-in-the-blank uh, to the church of blank. And it was meant to be passed around. It's not a big issue one way or another, but we would say that the Ephesian church, uh, first of all, was a major church in the New Testament. We have a whole book written to them. We have them listed in Revelation chapter 2. Um, we have First uh, and Second Timothy, where Timothy is, is the, uh, the lead shepherd at the church at Ephesus. So the church at Ephesus is a big deal. And especially from the evidence of 1 Timothy, where there were elders teaching false doctrine in various pockets of the church. That makes it pretty clear that the church at Ephesus is a bunch of different gatherings, still all under one apostolic authority, though. Historical and theological themes. We'll just list these briefly. The church as the body of Christ. You have unity in the body of Christ. And and incidentally, um, the book of Ephesians is how we understand that Jews and Gentiles are separate and yet unified. Um, That that we we come from a different heritage and yet in Christ, um, it's what Paul calls the one new man. That that we are all one in Christ. It doesn't erase distinctions, but it means we are all one in Him. You have love as a major theme in Ephesians. It's used in verb or noun form 20 times. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and so forth. You have the theme, the classic, classic passage in chapter 2, that by grace you have been saved. Um, Ephesians 2, if, if you suddenly have, uh, you go brain dead and you're about to share the gospel with somebody, if you pull out your Bible and go to Ephesians 2, it gives you the whole gospel right there, start to finish. You have household instructions. We, we love Ephesians uh, 5 and 6. It tells us what to do in our homes. You have the sovereign purpose of God in establishing the church. Uh, you have, in Ephesians 1, the greatest single... I'm not sure why this isn't... I haven't listed this as a, as a theme. But Ephesians 1 is one of the single greatest passages on the sovereignty of God in salvation. That you were chosen before the foundation of the world. It's also one of the single greatest passages, maybe in all the New Testament, on the Trinity. That salvation is to the glory of God the Father. First part of Ephesians 1. Salvation is to the glory of God the Son. The next part of Ephesians 1. And salvation is to the glory of God the Spirit. The last part of Ephesians 1. And then you have... The theme of walking, of speaking of the conduct of the believer compared to his pre-salvation life. And that happens seven times, that theme of walking. And I don't know how to tell you how to find it. I'm sure you could if you did a search, but I preached the whole book of Ephesians a few years ago here at Grace in in one message um, with seven points, all of them around the seven walks uh, of the Christian. And so if you're interested in that, that gives you an overview of Ephesians. What's the purpose of the book? The purpose is that Gentile Christians are shown their place in the purpose of God for the church and they're urged to show the outworking of their call in their conduct. Gentile Christians were shown their place in the purpose of God for the church and urged to show the outworking of their call in their conduct. And Ephesians is the probably the, the, the best example we have because it's so easy to divide. The best example we have of Paul's classic uh, uh, epistle style. And so uh, you're familiar with this. The first three chapters of Ephesians we would call uh, the call of the Christian or doctrine. How did you become a Christian? What is the theology behind your salvation? And then chapters 4 through 6, the conduct of the Christian or your duties. And so this book and all of Paul's other epistles give us this example that here is your theological foundation and here is the life you live as a result of that foundation, as a result of being saved. So the call of the Christian, the conduct of the Christian, or doctrine and duties. A couple of interpretive issues here. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the question is, what is the it? What is the gift of God? Is it grace alone? That actually doesn't fit grammatically. Is it faith as a gift? Grammatically this makes the most sense. Is it the salvation package by grace through faith? That makes the most sense logically since grace obviously is a gift. The word grace is a Greek word that means gift. So that makes sense to us. I would fall on what theologians call the combo pack view. The combo pack view says faith is a gift given by grace which results in the gift of salvation. If faith is a gift, then salvation is by definition also a gift. All the parts plus the sum of the parts. So it's actually an argument that doesn't mean a whole lot, but there is one major, major piece of this that is the difference between being a Calvinist and an Arminian. You ready for this? How did you have faith in the first place? The Arminian would say, well, I figured it out. And I intellectually decided I needed to have faith. But Ephesians 2.8 says that faith is a gift of God. That you couldn't have faith. That the faith to believe was a gift in the first place. And this makes sense when compared to Romans 3. That there's no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. So you can't, you can't believe both of those. So the huge key here is that whatever moment 
whatever process God brought you through, and there was a moment of regeneration, there was a moment when you believed, whether you know what that moment is or not, doesn't make any difference, but there was a moment when you had faith. When your eyes were opened, your ears were unstopped, your heart was unclogged, your mouth was open to confess Christ, that was given to you by God. So, let me ask you this. Who is worthy of all of our worship and honor then? You see how that view causes worship? It causes glory to go to God instead of to us. And when you were little, if you grew up in church, maybe you were taught the little song, God is so good, God is so good. You can't add in, and I'm kind of good too. (laughs) Faith is a gift. And so that's the big issue there. It's the combo pack. Faith is a gift by grace, which means gift. And your salvation, therefore, is a gift. It had nothing to do with you. How about this one? That Jesus ascended into the lower parts of the earth. Ephesians 4, 9. He ascended. What does it mean? that he? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Now, um, English Standard Version takes out the of. Uh, really shouldn't do that. Um, because it can mean of the earth, belonging to the earth. So what does it mean by the lower regions? Some think it's the depths of the earth in general. Uh, others think it is uh, the grave. The original uh, Apostles' Creed takes it as hell, descended into all the way into hell. The lower parts of the earth, uh, is it Christ as the Spirit at Pentecost? Ultimately, in context, Christ is ascending into heaven from the earth. So it says what is the opposite of that? That he descended from heaven to the earth. The issue there is that this is the incarnation and the death of Christ. And that's what we withhold to. And then the last little issue. This is one particularly important to me because this is this is an important issue. Make sure I'm on the right slide. Yes. What are the spiritual gifts Christ gave when he ascended into heaven? Chapter 4, verse 8 says, And he gave gifts. Most would view this as the spiritual gifts, such as Romans 12, the gift of uh, teaching and preaching and service and mercy and so forth, that, that he gave gifts. Well, the problem is the context doesn't allow for that, doesn't speak to that at all. In context, you just go forward a few verses... Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The context is verse 11. And he gave. Now, we'll stop right there. If three verses earlier, the Bible says he gave gifts to men and three verses later, it says, and he gave. Wouldn't it follow that whatever he gave is about to be listed? Anybody can figure that out. A 10 year old would figure that out. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we withhold to these gifts being gifts of men. Apostles, do we need them? Nope, they're dead. And we don't need them because we have what they wrote. And we don't need people walking around claiming to be apostles anymore. Prophets, do we need them? Nope, because we have everything that they wrote. We have, I don't know why people want to add to the Bible. It starts within the beginning and ends within the end. And that's pretty clear. Evangelists, do we have evangelists today? Um, can I tell you what an evangelist is not? An evangelist is not a guy with three suits and three sermons that travels to three cities a week. That's not an evangelist. An evangelist is a church planting missionary. That is the pattern in the book of Acts. Somebody who goes someplace and from scratch starts a church. And you don't do that by putting up signs and by uh, advertising. You do that by proclaiming the gospel the way that the Apostle Paul did. So do we have evangelists? Um, yeah, we support, we support six of them now in our church. There are different places in the world. They're church planters. And there's broader definitions. I won't get into that. Shepherds and teachers. So why is this important? Jesus clearly gave the apostles even before he ascended, so the apostles are from him. In the context, these are the functioning leaders of the church. Christ is the head of the church. The church, uh, Ephesians 2.20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The context demands that these gifts are men. He gave gifts to men. 
He gave the apostles. So we might put it this way. He gave gifts to men, which are gifts of men. Now, these are all uh, masculine words. They're all male words, if I can put it that way. These are men. But why is this so important? Because for 20 centuries, the Apostle Paul is no exception to this, for 20 centuries, disobedient churches treat their shepherds like second-class citizens instead of like gifts from God. And it's, it's hard for me to say that because I am one of those shepherds, but somebody has to say it, so I'm just going to say it. That's what the Bible says. There is no such thing as a happy, healthy church that is mistreating its shepherds or not respecting its shepherds. That just doesn't exist. It's the same as a wife. There's no such thing as a happy wife who won't submit to her husband. There's no such thing as a happy man who won't submit to his boss at work. That doesn't exist. But when you see that... In this glorious chapter of Ephesians 4 that speaks of this incredible event of the ascension of Jesus Christ, how many countless things could be mentioned in association with the, with the ascension of Christ? What the Apostle Paul mentions is that the ascension of Christ says that he gave gifts of men. And it is through the shepherds of the church that the gospel has been put forward for 20 centuries. That's why the gospel is spread. So I don't say that for my own benefit. I, I am spoiled rotten at Grace Bible Church. You, it's almost embarrassing sometimes how well you treat your shepherds. And I'm thankful for that. But trust me, I'm on the phone minimum twice a month with a shepherd somewhere in the country, somewhere in the world in tears because his church won't listen. And he's being mistreated and his wife and his children are mistreated because sheep bite, they kick, and they, they holler and they scream sometimes. That's, for some reason, one of the ministries the Lord has given me is to be a shoulder for other shepherds to kind of cry on sometimes. And, and then they say, well, how are things at your church? Uh, well, they're okay. You know, I, I, I hate to say I'm spoiled rotten because we're, we're very, very blessed here. Um, I heard John MacArthur preach a sermon, I'll never forget this quote as long as I live, that the driveways of many churches are filled with the skid marks of shepherds leaving in a hurry because they were decimated by their own congregations. That just happens over and over again. In the United States, you know how long the average uh, pastor stays in a church? Three years. Because they, because uh, sometimes it's because they're lousy pastors and they need to move on and that's good. But most of the time it's because of the church and that's sad. So I praise the Lord that's not the case here. But do you see why that interpretive issue is so important? He gave gifts of men. I'm so glad it doesn't say gifts of perfect men. We'd have a big problem then. Just gifts of men. So we have lots of wonderful shepherds here and I hope that helps your view of that. Um, we have two minutes for questions if you have any about Galatians or Ephesians.